Let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 16 through 18 today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Again, good to have all of you with us today, those who are our regular attenders and those visiting with us today. We're certainly glad to have you with us. Hebrews 2, beginning there in verse 16, and we'll read down through 18, which is the end of chapter 2. Verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. My thoughts this morning are primarily drawn to verse 17, where it says, A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. The writer, of course, of Hebrews here is certainly remembering not only his salvation, but I think maybe even more importantly, he's remembering his Savior. If we today attempt to look at our salvation or our Christian life, and in any part we look at it with Christ not the center of it, uh, we are certainly in a great danger. If today our hope, our entire hope, is not in the sufficiency of Christ and what He has accomplished, uh, we are certainly people who are in deep trouble this morning. But as the writer of Hebrews indicates here, uh, he is reminding us that it was through, in fact, His death, Jesus Christ's death, that Christ Himself destroyed Him who had the power of death. Uh, today, we should not live as if Satan has not been destroyed. Uh, we should not live as if Satan is not a defeated foe. We should live in victory, not because of our strength, not because of our uh, perseverance, but because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Uh, that event that mankind looks to and says, how could there be anything good in the crucifixion of a man on a cross? We look at that and say, uh, all that is necessary for eternal life was accomplished on that cross that I today can say with 100% certainty that Jesus Christ accomplished my salvation on the cross of Calvary. He did not just make it possible so that I might choose it for myself, but rather He accomplished my salvation and He is my Savior. And I hope you can say that today. I hope you can say with certainty that Jesus Christ is my Savior. In fact, the power of death has been destroyed, and with the power of death being destroyed, as the Apostle Paul wrote about, death has lost its sting. Uh, we left off last week dealing with verse 15 about the writer talking about delivering them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It is the fear of death that binds us. It is the fear of death that makes us look at the world and become fearful and become, I wonder what's going to happen next, but for the child of God, uh, we really shouldn't fear death. Because death has been overcome. Death has lost its sting. Uh, rightfully, uh, we're not afraid of death, but we don't want to die today. That's typically the way we look at it. But we shouldn't fear death because we understand that Christ destroyed. You see, one of man's greatest temptations is to leave out the wonderful works of God when he considers his life. What has God actually done for me? What has God actually done for my soul? Does my soul truly find rest in Christ? Do I truly, as we just sang those songs together, do I truly gaze on Christ? Do I see Him high and holy and exalted and lifted up? Do I actually understand the power of the cross is not some uh, mystical power. It's actually the power that accomplished and secured and saved my eternal soul. It's not some make-believe fairy tale story. It is the very hope in which I have. Salvation is the result of God's work alone. Salvation is of the Lord. And as soon as we settle that matter in our minds and 
quit fighting and deciding that I can add something to what Christ has accomplished. We all understand, I hope, that you cannot add anything to what he's accomplished, nor can you take anything away. There are some today that live in great fear that they have sinned so many times since Christ accomplished their salvation on the cross that they somehow will slip out of his fingers. They'll somehow slip out of his hands. I can assure you that once you have been claimed and purchased by the blood of Christ, there is no removal. You are not going to be removed from his hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And yet, the two greatest sources of heresy concerning Christ is what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with in these final two, three verses. The mystery of godliness that's found in Jesus Christ. How could this Christ be truly man and truly God? That is, in fact, where our hope lies, is that if Jesus Christ was not truly man and truly God, everything that I just said in this introduction would have no value to you. If he was simply a man, we would have no eternal hope. If he was simply God, we'd still have no eternal hope. Jesus Christ had to take on that robe of human flesh, had to become man in order to reconcile our sins to a holy God. And because he's done that, Again, he didn't just make reconciliation possible. He has actually reconciled us to God. Isn't it amazing to know that if you're in Christ today, you are reconciled to God. God is never reconciled to us, but sinful man is reconciled to God. That is, in fact, what's happening here. Yet the heresy that is permeating churches today and even Christianity, sad to say, is the reality is or was, whichever one you want to use, was Jesus Christ really man? Did he really die? And was he really God? We all are partakers of human nature. Christ's humanity was entirely different. God voluntarily added to what already was. Christ was already divine, but he took on flesh and blood, and we refer to it as two natures in one. He did not flip out of one nature to the other so that one minute he's in the flesh and the next time he's in the divinity. He was two natures in one. And what was happening on that cross is Jesus was in fact fulfilling one of those three major roles of the prophet and the priest, but also understanding that he was in fact making reconciliation for our sins. We notice in the verse 16, the declaration is made very clearly that Christ took upon himself not the nature of angels. Now we have witnessed in this exposition of Hebrews since chapter 1 that there has been this emphasis to point out the difference between the nature of angels and the nature of Christ and our nature. We learned almost in the very first messages about the, the tendency for people to worship angels, how that angels were never intended to be the subject of worship. But he clearly defines the reality here that the nature that he took on is Jesus Christ did not take on the nature of angels, but rather he took on him the seed of Abraham. That is a reference to taking on human nature. So Christ took upon himself I think this is important, took upon himself the seed of Abraham. Now we understand there are fallen angels. We understand that there are the angels that attend the glory of God. They attend the throne of God. Those fallen angels were never, ever, ever intended to be the subject of Christ's saving grace. The fallen angels are not the ones that are recipients of what was accomplished on the cross. Those fallen angels are not receiving redemption or reconciliation of their sins. They will remain in that fallen condition. Christ did not die for the angels. In order to have died for the angels, he would have had to take on the nature of angels, and he did no such thing. But rather, he took on the nature of sinful man. The nature of angels could never have been an atoning sacrifice or made a reconciliation between sinful man and God. The nature of angels could not do it. 
What about the nature of the quote-unquote holy angels? Could their nature have made reconciliation unto God? Jesus Christ did not take on the nature of the holy angels either. So he didn't take on the nature of fallen angels. He didn't take on the nature of holy angels. But what he did, in fact, take on was human nature. If you would, hold your place there in Hebrews and go over to the book of Jude. I just want you, want you to see a couple of verses here that make reference to the fate of the fallen angels. And I don't want to spend much time on this, but I, I want you to see the Bible does make a very clear uh, declaration as to the destination or the destiny uh, of these fallen angels. In Jude, verse number 5, it says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Uh, that tells us very clearly, folks, that those angels which fell will remain and they will never be reconciled to God. They will remain in that fallen state. So what nature that he's talking about here is human nature, but he's very specific, the writer was in Hebrews. He said he took on him the seed of Abraham. So we've established the fact that there was no salvation for the fallen angels that Jesus Christ did not take on the nature of fallen angels nor the nature of holy angels, but he took on the nature of the seed of Abraham. Why did the writer of Hebrews emphasize the seed of Abraham and not just say the nature of man? Because we understand that the human nature that Christ took on was to come from the line of Abraham. Old Testament prophecy teaches us that the Messiah was to spring forth from Abraham and it was promised Abraham that this, his seed, many nations, all nations, would be blessed. So it is the seed of Abraham that is mentioned here. Now we've, we've got a little bit of reading we need to do today because I want us to see from the scripture how this is so vitally important, uh, this seed of Abraham being the given statement here and that Jesus did not just, it doesn't just say he took on human nature. Uh, go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Go to Genesis 22 and look, at me, look with me at verse 1. We won't read all of this. I'll, I'll, I'll move around some of these verses, but uh, the, the Bible can obviously say this much better than I would ever be able to say it. Genesis 22 is the sacrifice that, that Isaac was going to be offered upon the altar. And of course, we see in verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. 
And Abraham called the place, the name of that place, Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. We see very clearly that the promise that was made to Abraham in the offering of his son, there was a promise that all nations would be blessed out of that seed. We know that the sacrifice of Isaac upon the altar there is a picture and a, a, a foreshadowing of Christ who would go and would die for the sins as the only Son of God. Galatians 3 kind of adds to what we just read here and strengthens this picture of how the seed of Abraham is the key to Christ taking on human nature. Again, remember, that's the point we are, we are trying to establish here. Why did the Scripture say specifically the seed of Abraham? Galatians 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator." Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Here it is. Paul, as he wrote in Galatians, was saying, if there had been a law, if there had been a way, that man could reconcile himself to God by himself, he would have given it. But he says, rather, there was nothing that man could do. But the scripture concludes all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up into the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And I love this. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ took on the seed of Abraham? Because it's through the seed of Abraham that his human nature accomplished what it was to accomplish. This shows us very clearly the sovereign hand and act and purpose and plan of God and how he distinguished his saving, redeeming grace and mercy. He didn't say that the distinguishing mark would be your keeping of the law. The distinguishing mark would not be your ability to obey the law. The distinguishing mark of your reconciliation to God would be Jesus Christ Himself. And because Jesus Christ took on that human nature, He satisfied the demands of what God was calling for. Christ's great mission in this world was not to come to save the fallen angels, but to save fallen man and in order to save fallen man he had to take on man's nature the seed of abraham he didn't come in the nature of angels he came in the nature of man back in our text in verse 17 wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest 
So number two this morning, Christ was made like his brethren. What a beautiful statement. Christ was made like his brethren. Imagine, as we looked a bit last week, that when Christ sees us, he calls us brethren. He doesn't call us distant relatives. He doesn't call us distant acquaintances. He doesn't even call us a colleague. He says brethren. Now these brethren, of course, we believe were marked out before the foundation of the world. That's what we believe the doctrines of grace teaches, is that you were marked out before the foundation of the world so that man could know at any point ever glory in his salvation. Why Jesus Christ chose us was for his glory. That's the only answer we can give. He didn't choose us because we were better. He didn't choose us because we were smarter. He didn't choose us because we would be a great asset to the ministry. He chose us for his glory. Remember, the purpose of salvation is not first and foremost to save your soul from hell. It is that his glory would be manifested in every one of his people. If you grew up like I did, I was always taught that the main reason Jesus Christ died for my sins is so I wouldn't have to go to hell. That's not scriptural. It was that his glory might be manifested. I received the great benefit of my soul being saved from hell, but that's not the primary reason why he died on the cross. He died in order that his glory might be manifested. Christ does not share his glory. He doesn't say, I get 99% of the glory, I'll give you 1%. No, he says, I am 100% receive all the glory, including your salvation. That's why it is the pinnacle of foolishness for a person to say, I believe in the sovereignty of God in everything except man's salvation. If you don't believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, then you don't believe in God's sovereignty at all. Why would God exclude salvation from his sovereignty in his providential hand? Why would he exclude that? It makes no sense as to why he would exclude what man's greatest need was. He was made like his brethren in order to be, look, look at this beautiful statement, a merciful and faithful high priest. Do you realize how glorious it is if he had just said he's a merciful high priest? That's a glorious statement. But do you know what adding faithful to it means? Not only is his mercy gracious, not only is his mercy just unfathomable, but he's faithful to keep all that he's promised, including the mercy that he's extended to you. You know, we all can be merciful to a point. I think we're all, we're all, I think we'd all be in agreement with this. We could say, I'm a merciful person. It depends on how far you get pushed to the limit. There may be a point where you would say, my mercy has run out on that person. My mercy has run out on that situation. Christ's mercy never runs out. He's faithful to the promises all the way back to the promise that was made to Abraham. That he will always be faithful. What wonderful love is this that appeared to us when Christ knew that he would suffer, he must go to the cross, that he would die in our place, yet he readily took it upon himself. He readily, without any hesitation, his atonement made a way for our deliverance. Not just delivered us from hell, but also delivered us from the bondage of Satan. Folks, we do not live in bondage to a defeated foe. Some of us are allowing Satan to get some kind of a foothold in our life because we don't truly believe that Jesus Christ has already overcome the wicked one. And sometimes our problem is, is we're blaming Satan for a lot of our issues and a lot of our sin when the problem's not Satan. He's not pinpointing you alone. That's your own old sin nature that's rising up and you're choosing to do what you're doing. We just like to blame Satan because we're a blame-shifting society. It's always somebody else's fault. No matter what it is, I wouldn't have done that had it not been. The odds are so minuscule that Satan, Satan himself actually made you do anything. How high do we think of ourselves to think that Satan actually spent his time on me today? Satan just makes it worse. You and I are already depraved. We do enough on our own. We're reminded of our human nature every day. And when you think about that Jesus Christ took on a human nature yet without sin, think about what he was delivering us from. 
He delivered us from Satan's bondage, but he also delivered to us a pardon of our sins through faith. Listen, we live in a fearful world. You as parents and grandparents, if you're anything like me, you can get caught up in the fear that you have for your children and your grandchildren and what they're going to face. And we say things like this all the time. If it's this bad now, what's it going to be in 30 years? What am I going to leave to my kids? And that's why I tell us over and over and over again, ground your children in the scriptures and do everything you can to point them to Christ. When they ask the simple questions about the Bible, give them as much time as they need, even if it's a time when it's just not convenient for you. Use every opportunity to teach your children to place and find their hope in Christ. Not find their hope and faith in something that can never deliver, but to find their hope in Christ. Pray for the salvation of your children the moment that they're born. Say, God, if it be your will to save my children, save my children. But don't just sit back and act like you don't have to do anything. Direct your children in the ways of Christ. Lead your home in the way of Christ. Have a church that comes along beside you and says, listen, we want Christ to be the preeminent in your life. We want your children to know who Christ is. And not, not the children's Bible story, but we want, him to, we want you to know, that child, to know who Christ is. How soon is it too early to tell children about their sin? I don't think you can ever say it too soon. Well, they can't handle it. Maybe they can't. But I also realize this, our church, we realize the little ones are sitting here with us. They don't understand everything that's being said. But you know what? They do pick up things. And they are learning. And some of these kids are blowing my mind. I'm telling you, I'm like, wow, that's God. And yet, we shouldn't live as if we have no hope. We have a merciful and faithful high priest. And look at this, look at this, in things pertaining to God. How much of a complete declaration can that be? Everything that pertains to God in Christ, we have a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. Nothing's been left out. It was necessary for Christ to take on the seed of Abraham or to become man because unless he was a man, he could not be a high priest to offer sacrifice for sin and make intercession. The Bible tells us that the high priest was taken from among men. We're going to get to this chapter in probably a number of months at the pace that we go. But Hebrews chapter 5, I want you to see this perspective here about how Christ could not have been this high priest to offer reconciliation had he not been taken from among men. This chapter spells that out clearly. Hebrews 5 verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for he that himself also is compassed with infirmity. That that verse 2 gets me every single time. Ignorant and out of the way. The day God opened my eyes truly to my own ignorance was indeed a glorious day. Because the day God showed me my ignorance was the day I thought spiritually I had actually arrived. He showed me you're ignorant in what you think you know. You think you're in the way, but you're actually out of the way. You're not on the right path. You're not in the right direction. You're not doing this for my glory. You're not doing this for my honor. You're doing this so that you may receive the applause of man. Yet this high priest, he's compassed with infirmity. In other words, he would take on all that humanity would take. He'd be tempted. He'd be sick. He would hunger. He would thirst. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now remember, the high priest in the Old Testament had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first, then sins for the people. Christ never had to offer up a sacrifice for his own sin because he was sinless. But he was a picture. 
And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Of course, that's the father speaking to the son. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We read that in Psalm 110 for our call to worship. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, watch this, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In order for Christ to offer up that sacrifice, he had to become a man. Secondly, in order to be the sacrifice, he had to have a sacrifice to offer. It wasn't enough in the Old Testament for the high priest just to go into the Holy of Holies. He had to actually have something to offer as a sacrifice. What did God require? According to Hebrews 9, in verse number 6, we see that what was required was blood. Yes, don't be afraid to talk about the blood in church. It's disappearing quickly. We're, people don't want to talk about it anymore. They don't want to talk about the blood. Christ could, have, Christ could have saved us without His blood. Really. And why does Hebrews 9 tell us that it was required? At what point did, did people who say they're believers become ashamed of the blood of Christ? It is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And yet, the writer of Hebrews, again, this gives us a picture here. Verse 6 of Hebrews 9, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. You see what that says? That high priest did not just go into the Holy of Holies without blood. He had to take blood with him, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. We've already established Christ didn't have any errors. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal, carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. What's the first two words of verse 11? But... Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Oh, may God deliver us from dead works. We spent that time this morning in Bible study talking about defining good works from the confession, and I hope you're looking forward to where we're going with that. But folks... Christ has delivered us from these dead works that have no value and gain no acceptance before a holy God. It is only the blood of Christ and his righteousness that's been imputed unto us that allows us to stand before God and God in that perfect sovereignty looks at us. He doesn't see us. He sees the righteousness of his son. One of the great eternal mysteries is that God looks at us and sees the righteousness of his son. Every day I remind myself how unworthy I am to stand in the presence of God. Every day I'm reminded how my works could not possibly do enough to merit me favor with God. But for years, maybe like some of you, I believe that my good works were, was actually gaining me some favor, gaining me some points with God, that God was impressed with my ministry, God was impressed with my preaching, God was impressed with my service, May God deliver us from dead works. 
When you say things like Christ alone, I hope you're not just saying that because that's what you hear at our church all the time. I hope you're saying that with full sufficiency and full understanding that he is, in fact, all we need. He is the sacrifice. He is his blood that was shed. And thirdly, he could not have been a faithful high priest or a mediator without a perfect righteousness. In other words, he had to have a sacrifice. He had to offer. He had to have a sacrifice. But thirdly, he also had to offer a perfect righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us all about this. And this is, a, again, a beautiful passage that reminds us of, of what we're talking about today. Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned at the dissimilitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as of the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Those who say that salvation didn't cost anything obviously don't know your Bible. Didn't cost you anything. Didn't cost you anything. But that free gift was dependent upon the perfect righteousness of Christ offering up his life in the nature of man as a sacrifice and required his blood. It goes on to say, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did what? Much more abound. <laughs> Aren't you glad for that? That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. It's hard to admit that at some point in my life, and maybe your own life, you had the thought that you deserved grace. You deserved mercy. You deserved God to take into account all the sacrifices that you made. God, aren't you seeing what I'm doing for you? Don't you see what I'm giving up? Don't you see how I've given up all? Much like the disciples. Lord, can't you see we've given up all to follow you? I don't believe there's a single person who's ever truly lived on this planet who's truly given up all to follow him. You see, it's a difficult thing because even in our intentions, we could not satisfy the demands of a holy God. The writer of Hebrews applies this humanity to the priesthood of Christ because without the priesthood of Christ, the sinner would receive no benefit unless Christ had become a man. He had to become like unto us in all things with the exception of sin or being a sinner. I mentioned to you this two weeks ago. There is a new heresy going around that Jesus Christ, the only reason he died is because he died for his own sin first. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. The heresy, Jesus Christ was a sinner. The only way he could have been a human is he had to be a sinner. It's taken years, but it's infiltrating. Would you recognize it if a church was proclaiming it? Would you recognize a church that they didn't come right out and say, hey, Jesus had to die for his own sin first? He didn't sin. He didn't become, he was not a sinner. But as in the priesthood, not only was he making reconciliation for our sins, but the third point here is, is that he would be truly touched with the feelings of our miseries. This faithful high priest would not only reconcile us to God, but he would also suffer temptation 
And I love this. I love it all, but I love this too. That he would be able to help us when we're tempted. Christ suffered being tempted, we see in our text, so that he is able to secure or to help us. It is to make intercession for us. It is to understand exactly what we're going through. Some of us have lived through periods of our life, seasons of life, when we've made this statement, nobody knows what I'm dealing with. No other human knows what you're dealing with, but Christ knows exactly what you're dealing with because He went through exactly the same thing. You see, temptation is what it says in verse 18 of Hebrews 2, for in that He Himself hath suffered. I've heard another heretical teaching going around that Jesus Christ actually didn't suffer anything. Folks, this is, these are heresies. These are not just, eh, it's just your opinion. If you hear somebody say that Jesus Christ did not really suffer and die, it's heresy. If you hear that Jesus Christ was actually a sinner and that he atoned for his own sin first, it's heresy. Don't excuse the preacher or the church that's saying that. Well, he's a good communicator. Communication means absolutely nothing if it's not the Word of God being communicated. And God does not just bless the gifted communicator. There are faithful people all over this world who are preaching and proclaiming the gospel. That's why we pray for every church around this nation, around this world, that is boldly willing to stand up and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care if they can speak eloquently or not. We've had enough of that where you've got to come hear this gifted speaker. I don't want to hear a gifted speaker. I want to hear about Jesus Christ. If, you're, if a man is preaching the gospel, he is a gifted speaker. He's received the free gift of salvation. Well, he's just too hard to follow. He's not my style. Maybe not. But if he's preaching the gospel and your family is seated upon the, under the gospel preaching, be thankful. They shared that quote this week from Sproul. I just loved it. He said, do everything you can to get your family in a church that preaches the gospel. If it means you have to move, then you move. If it means you have to drive far, drive far. But do not underestimate the power of a church that's preaching the gospel. Because it does matter. And not every church with the name church or Baptist on it means it's preaching the gospel. Folks, use discernment, use wisdom. We're tempted. Temptation is not just the temptations to sin or the, temp the temptations of life. What about the temp times you've been tempted when things appeared that God had forsaken you? You don't have to raise your hand. We've all felt that at some point in our life as a believer. God has forsaken me. He's never forsaken you. He understands what it is to be forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus would not have won a popular preacher contest in his day. Nobody would have had him in. Nobody would have had the Apostle Paul. They wouldn't have sent out flyers to say, come here, the great Apostle Paul. If they showed up, they would have been there to stone him is why they would have showed up. He suffered temptations just as we did. He suffered frailty. He, he suffered hunger. He suffered thirst. He's able to help those that are tempted. Guess who the those who are tempted are? It's you and I. When we remember his own sorrows, his own temptation, it makes Christ, we understand Christ is mindful of the trials of his people. And he's ready to help. He's willing and ready to help those that are tempted. Folks, if you're going through that valley right now and you're in that place right now in your life where you feel like God is forsaken and nobody understands, seek the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you're already in Christ, fall on your face before God and beg God and say, God, I need Christ. And if you're here unconverted today, you've never been regenerated. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe what the Bible says. You are a sinner. You are in need of a Savior. And run to Christ as fast as you can. I didn't say clean yourself up and get here. I didn't say run down an aisle. I didn't say do anything other than run to Christ. Cast all of your 
trust in him. He is the only one, even though he became a man and he is tempted, he's the only one qualified in every way to help his people. Folks, I've told you this, and again, I'm not trying to be too personal today, but I have walked through the valley with some people with different things. I'm just telling you straight up, I couldn't help them. I couldn't. And they wanted me to help. And you feel an enormous amount of pressure to help people and don't ever be ashamed or timid to say, Christ is your only help. I didn't have the words. And I will tell you, as a pastor, I feel like I have to have the answer to everyone's problems. I don't. There's times you tell me something, I have no idea what to tell you other than to run to the Scriptures and run to Christ. And people say, well, don't you have something better? So really, you want my opinion over running to Christ. No, you don't. You want His Word. Take His Word and pray and cry over it. Christ is there. He's he's been tempted and He's willing to help you. I've been in my own place where nobody could help me. Including my family. They could not help me. And it was only through Christ. I've told you this many times. Psalm 42 was my lifeline. My hope is in God. Why art thou cast down? That's a, that psalm is about Christ. That psalm is about finding my help in Christ and actually believing He actually saying He can help me. Christ was tempted in all ways, not just to sympathize with us. Oftentimes we think what Christ does is sympathize. No, He actually helps. A merciful and faithful high priest, this is the reason why He suffered. He became a man capable of suffering that He might be able to help the tempted and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime they were subject to bondage. They lived in fear of the devil. They lived in fear of death. He didn't take on the nature of angels, but He took on Himself the seed of Abraham. So it behooved Him, it says, to be like His brethren. Oh, don't ever lose sight of the fact that Christ calls us brethren. That He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. Folks, if you've been reconciled to God today, your sins have been reconciled. I want you to think about something for a minute. Christ left the right hand of His Father to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect sinless life in perfect obedience to the law, to be unjustly condemned, sent to a cross to die, that He might bear in Himself sins of His people. He who made all things knew exactly what it was like to be weak, to be misunderstood, to be forsaken, and to even die. Christ became the captain, the author, the composer, the finisher of our faith. God had to become man. Christ had to die to save us from the condemnation of the law. He had to sacrifice Himself. He had to shed His own blood. And in order to reconcile us to God, He had to die. And He did. But just as that song we opened our service with today, the power of the cross is the fact He did not stay dead, but that He rose from the grave. The power of the cross was most clearly seen in the resurrection. Isn't it amazing how the resurrection gets neglected until we get around springtime and Easter and suddenly everybody wants to talk about the resurrection. If all that had been is a death and no resurrection, today, the last 45 minutes, 50 minutes, we just stood here listening to this would have been worthless. You would have left here saying, well, where's the hope? He's still dead. He's not dead. Today says, prove it. Take me to the tomb where they put his body. Wouldn't do a thing for me. You think that's going to strengthen my faith? Because I see an empty tomb? I already knew that. I already knew that. Why? Because the Bible says he rose. And by raising, he defeated death, sin, the grave. He's overcome all. 
He is our representative now, our merciful and faithful high priest at the right hand of God. Blessed be the name of God. I want to give you just two verses as our benediction that we're going to stand and, and dismiss in prayer today. We're not going to have a closing song. I just want to give you these verses and then we're going to pray and uh, we'll be on our way. But Hebrews 2, later on um, in, the, in that uh, particular chapter, he makes mention of uh, these, these particular uh, great... Or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for the Word today. Thank You for the comfort that we have found in the Scriptures. Lord, help us never be found neglecting the reading of the Word. The reading of the Word is where we find all of our hope and all of our strength. It reminds us of Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, I truly today do pray for that saint today, that believer who is struggling to find help. They are truly struggling to find mercy and faithfulness. May you remind them again today that there is only one merciful and faithful high priest, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We know that man is going to fail other people. We are all fallible. We are going to disappoint. We are going to do wrong. We are going to sin. But Christ is perfect without sin. I pray that believers today would turn to Him and find their strength and comfort in Him. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever today. Lord, only You know the hearts of every single person here and every single person under the sound of my voice. You know the heart, whether it's converted. You know whether that soul has been regenerated. Father, we pray and we plead with You today if it is Your sovereign will that you would save a soul here, you would save a soul uh, in our family, at our places of business, that, Lord, we might be able to rejoice and we might be able to see the power of God at work in the life of another person. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Lord, if this would be our last time together as a body of Christ, Lord, may we leave here today knowing that we've heard the truth and that we have determined that we would not just be hearers, but doers. We thank you for all these things. Thank you for the remission of our sins. And thank you for Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest. And it's all these things we pray. Amen. All right. Lord bless you. Thank you for being here today. Mm -hmm.